Turn again in your Bibles to 2 Samuel, chapter 13. Anger you cannot afford. Verses 30 through 39. William Garden Blakey, in his commentary on uh, 2 Samuel, which is really more of a volume of sermons, um, nevertheless writes, ancient history abounds in frightful stories. Stories of murder, incest, and revenge. The materials, real or fabulous, from which were formed the tragedies of the great, great Greek dramatists. But nothing in their dramas is more tragic than the crime of Amnon, the incest of Tamar, and the revenge of Absalom. Now we've alluded to that already before the reading of God's word. And it is a terrible account, surely one that is inspired of God and an infallible and inerrant record of what took place. But it is nevertheless difficult to read and in some ways difficult to preach as well. And really, Blakey is right. There's nothing here that is inferior in the sense of drama uh, than to what the great, great Greek tragedies record. Now, we've noted that, and we've attempted to preach from it. And we come to the next part of the text. And it is a part that follows logically from what has taken place before. And it makes far less sense to study these verses without having um, looked at and understood, at least to some degree, the first 28, 29 verses of the chapter, of the wickedness, of the ugliness, of uh, Amnon's uh, cruelty, um, not only to his half-sister, uh, but now as we think of not only his cruelty to her and then just sort of callously casting her aside, we now come to that which is consequent or subsequent, and we come to see something of what it is that Absalom does, but does in view of what has already taken place. That is, Absalom's actions do not occur in a vacuum. He doesn't just wake up one day and say, you know, I hate my brother and I'm going to do him in. But rather, there's this history, there's this record, there's what has already taken place uh, that prompts him. And as we'll come to see, Absalom actually bides his time for two years before he does anything. This thing festers. And uh, 
he's going to do something about it. And again, as we, we often see in the scriptures, this phrase, we find it in verse 30, and it came to pass. Well, you could say, of course it came to pass. Um, that's how things happen. Things come to pass. But what is in view is that which Absalom had um, intended to do uh, for a very long time. And it is a passage that speaks eloquently, speaks volumes. It tells us a great deal about the dangers that we too face, even though the circumstances may vary. Now we'll come back to that in just a moment, but it's interesting to observe sort of as an aside, the parallels that exist between David's sin um, and then something of Amnon's and even Absalom's. Both of these sins, that is, I'm thinking of Amnon's now and David's, were of the same immorality. The taking of beautiful women, not their own outside of marriage. Both of them took place in the privacy of their own houses. Both didn't just happen, but both were the result of strategy, of strategizing, of a, of a stratagem. Both were the means of gaining something. David Bathsheba, um, Amnon, his sister, and even Absalom, moving ahead a little bit, perhaps, if some have suggested, the kingdom. Both of them had an ally. David had Joab, and uh, Amnon had Jonadab. Both of the women that were involved experienced great misery, grief, sorrow. And both involved fatality, that is, the death and the death of a family member. Now coming back to the text itself, what does it say to us? How is it relevant and significant and important? Well, I think the bottom line is that it deals with anger. And it deals with anger that is not resolved righteously. Again, Blakey writes, Adultery and murder had been introduced by him into the palace. When he is done with them, they remain to be handled by his sons, meaning David's sons. The anger of Absalom is now unleashed. And it affects not only himself, but others as well, who in some cases are equally angry. The point, however, is anger is unleashed. And what we come to discover from the text is that anger is destructive, anger is divisive, 
And anger can even be deadly, as we see in the case. Well, there are a number of things to say, I think, from the text about anger. First of all, if we gather up something of the previous context to give focus and to give structure and to give perspective for what we're dealing with at the moment, notice, first of all, anger and injustice. Things are not right. And there's nothing about the first 29 verses. There's nothing there that is right. Amnon pursues great wickedness, even as David had before. Things are not right. And Absalom gets mad, but even David grows angry. Injustice is the order of the day in the context. But injustice at some level is the order of the day for us today as well. Everywhere we turn, we are inclined to see or we may see injustice. Amnon's actions are not just. David's actions are not just. Absalom's actions are not just. And Absalom is at a certain level, of course, rightly enraged. He's angry, and he has a right at some level to be angry. And again, I submit to you that everywhere we turn, there's the potential to grow angry, and perhaps even legitimately so. There are personal offenses that come our way. Difficulties arise in even the best of homes and marriages. It's very easy to become angry at one's spouse. Or in the larger family setting. Interpersonal relationships. And certainly at a political level. It seems that more than half of the nation right now is angry. Perhaps the entire nation is angry about something. Alleged government overreach. Or elections that were lost a whole number of things, unjust killings and the like. And it's very easy to look at what we perceive to be an injustice, and they're all around us, and to grow angry. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment, but notice secondly in verses 22 and 23, anger and intrigue. Absalom allows his anger at the injustice that has taken place to fester. He allows it to grow, begins as a seed 
germinates and it grows into a plant and, and now it bears fruit. He waits for two years. This is not a burst of anger as um, wrong as that may be or as wrong as that often is where something happens and we snap and we grow angry. This isn't that kind of anger. This is something that festers and grows. And once again, we see that in the world in which we live today. People have grown angry and they get angrier and angrier and angrier and angrier. This was well planned by deliberate choice. This is deliberate malice. It becomes public. It's a, a, a cruel and cool calculated hatred. Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way, but Absalom's hatred was a sophisticated high class hatred. A rage that could wait. After two years, the moment finally arrived. And so the circumstances would have been common in the day. It was a particular time of year and the sheep shearers would be uh, gathered in a particular place. And the place that is mentioned here is about 15 miles north of Jerusalem. And here was the opportunity that, that Absalom needed, that he could use to his advantage. Now, I submit to you again that Absalom isn't the exception. And we must not point our finger and wag our finger at Absalom as if we are not susceptible to the same kind of thing. Given the right circumstances, we might do something similar. I'm not to suggest that we would murder somebody, but that we might respond. Given the right set of circumstances, we too might act out of rage and anger inappropriately. It was Calvin who said that the seed of all rebellion of every sin lies within the heart of every single one of us. There's not one thing we are not susceptible of doing. I don't think that was a very good sentence, but I think you get the, you get the point. From the garden, the greatest problem we face, certainly one of the greatest problems we face from the very garden itself is the problem of rebellion. And the seed of that sin germinating, flourishing, and blossoming. The Apostle Paul reminds us of how prevalent anger is in the heart of mankind. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul writes, For we also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, and then listen to what he says, living in malice and envy, 
hateful, hating one another. That's a biblical view of the natural man. And so where do we find hope? Well, certainly not in the natural man, in the natural heart. Paul goes on in verses 4 through 7, Titus chapter 3, to say, but when the kindness of God our Savior, there's, there's a shift, there's, there's, there's an, an abrupt shift, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love toward man appeared, not by works done in righteousness which we did ourselves, but according to His mercy He saved us, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, which He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Once foolish, disobedient, deceived, living in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another, and now having a Savior and... Righteousness and a new heart and a new life. So first of all, we saw anger and injustice. It's very easy to become angry at real or perceived injustices all around us. And then we see, secondly, anger and intrigue. Let that anger fester and it prompts the planning of dealing with it. Now thirdly, notice in verses 29 through 31, anger and intemperance. Anger and intemperance. The report comes that Absalom, or that uh, rather, that uh, yes, that Absalom has slain all of the sons of of the king. Pink writes, how often the bearers of evil tidings make things worse by exclusively exaggerating them. Someone else has said, initial reports are commonly exaggerated. And again, we see something of that in the world in which we live today. Blogs, Rumors, false reports, conspiracy theories. So much of it resulting in an appalling irresponsibility. And so here is a rumor. Misinformation, intentional or otherwise. So much of uh, part of the world in which we live. It was R.C. Sproul who popularized the following, though I'm not sure it was original with him, but he makes the point in one of his books that the lie makes its way halfway around the world while truth is putting on its boots. The lie makes its way halfway around the world while truth is putting on its boots. And so often this is what we face today. The report. The reports given 
Things are out of control. And the response is one of excess, a sort of slash and burn approach to whatever it is that we face. Joseph Hall wrote, Nothing is more unsafe to be trusted than the fair looks of a festered heart. The reality was only Absalom had died. David was afflicted by a false report, fake news if you want to use a current term. And again, how ready we are to believe the worst. False reports from the right and from the left. How awful it is when that invades the church. How quick we are to believe the worst and how slow we are to believe good news. Even the gospel. Pink again writes, there is a warning for us here not to credit reports of evil until they are definitely corroborated. And the result of this false report was massive grief. Now fourthly notice anger and indifference to the truth. In verses 32 and 33, Jonadab appears on the scene. And this isn't the first time that we have uh, seen him or heard of him or read of him. Remember, he was the one who gave Absalom the advice as to how to bring his uh, half-sister Tamar close to him. And so Jonadab appears and says, no, that's just not true. Um, And he calls himself David's servant. This was all Amnon's doing. He had this in mind from the very beginning. We actually don't know that. Or that is um, Absalom's response. But the significant thing is he doesn't even mention his own involvement in all of this. In this scene or scenario of of anger and injustice, he's, he's clearly partially responsible, but he's engaged in blame shifting. It's not my fault. Well, he doesn't even say that. He merely says it's all Absalom's fault and so he excuses himself seeking to be allegedly some help to his lord the king fifthly notice anger and insensitivity in verse 33 there's a kind of cruelty here now therefore Jonadab says, Let not my lord the king take the thing to his heart. To think that all the king's sons are dead. Now, if he'd stopped there, there would have been certainly 
an appropriateness about that. Don't take it to heart. Don't, don't feel this so deeply. Not all the king's sons are dead. But then he goes on to say, only Absalom is dead, as if it really didn't matter at all. Don't take it to heart. Only Amnon is dead. But all of the sons still alive will never make up for the loss of the one son who has been taken. There's a kind of of cruelty here, callousness. The, The death of one doesn't really matter at all. You've got plenty of other sons. Say that to a parent who's lost a child. Parents never forget, will always remember. And they're going to have ten more. And that doesn't offset, in one sense, the loss of the one. Anger and insensitivity. Sixthly, notice in verse 36, anger and indulgence. Again, David does what he has done previously when he learns of the violation of Tamar. He grows angry, but he doesn't do anything at all, and he's the chief magistrate of the nation. There is a pattern here of doing nothing when in a position to do something that is right. David wept, but that's all that he did. He did nothing with regard to uh, the issue of incest. And he seemingly does nothing here at all with regard to the death of a son, or the death, rather, of Absalom's brother. Seventhly, notice in verse 36, anger and its intensity. David grows melancholy. David grows hopeless. David was inconsolable not able to be consoled at all. David and all his servants in verse 36 wept very sore. More than ordinary, normal grief. And that isn't to suggest that we ought to become calloused as well toward the grief of those around us. But there's a way of dealing with grief and anger that does not allow for it to become deep-seated depression and a sense of hopelessness. Eighthly, notice anger and insolence. We are told three times that Absalom fled. Verse 34 verse 37, and again 
in verse 38. Absalom doesn't deal appropriately, biblically, righteously with his anger, but he runs away. To put it differently, Absalom never takes responsibility for his anger and for the actions that he took with regard. And he flees, he runs away. And how often the sinner does the same thing and runs away from the church so often, the very place where they might find comfort and encouragement and help and righteous help out of their difficulty. But Absalom flees because there is no place for him in Israel. He can go nowhere. Even the cities of refuge would have been off limits to him. No shelter to him because there was no shelter in the cities of refuge to those guilty of willful murder. So he flees because there's no place for him in Israel. And he flees to the only place left. The only place known to him. And to put it in more contemporary New Testament terms, terms, he flees to the world. To the land of his mother to her people, to his grandfather, to a place marked by unbelief. It was an area east of the Sea of Galilee, some 80 miles northeast of Jerusalem. How often the sinner refuses to take responsibility for their actions and flee and conclude there's no place for them in spiritual Israel, but there is if they would but repent and turn to the Lord. And so they flee and they turn back to the world and they turn from the things of God. And ninthly and finally notice anger and impenitence. Anger and irreverence. After three years, for David, there's still no resolution. Absalom is gone for three years. We'll pick up in the next chapter Absalom's return to Israel. But he's gone for three years, and for this period of time, it appears that David continued to mourn. And it's interesting to observe, with the loss of his child through Bathsheba, he mourned. And he realized that the child was dead And he moved on because there was a spiritual connection. With Amnon, it 
he mourned and mourned and mourned and mourned. And finally, was comforted, but as a result of a sentimental connection and not a spiritual connection. Now, the reason I say all of that is because there's no mention of God. As I said last week, there's no mention of God in these latter verses. David was emotional and sentimental instead of spiritual and serious. He cared more for his sons than he did for the things of God. Sons who had no scruples whatsoever at all. At all. One writer says, David had come to terms with the loss of Amnon because he was dead. Absalom, however, might as well have been dead so far as his father was concerned. David longed to see him, but he did not recall him. His love and his sense of justice found no place of reconciliation. So torn between the two, he did nothing. And Matthew Henry says, this is David's infirmity. Pink writes, the claims of God must prevail over all natural inclinations to the contrary. And when they do not, we have to pay dearly, as David did. Pink went on to say, it is to be duly noted that there is no word recorded of David seeking the Lord at this time. And then he writes this, ominous Silence. Anger and impenitence. Anger and insolence. Rebellion. Both Absalom and even David himself. Well, there are two or three things to say by way of some conclusion and pulling this together. The first I've already mentioned early on in the sermon, and that is how quickly we believe bad news, but how slowly we believe good news. And by that I mean how slowly we believe that the good news of the gospel influences or ought to influence us in the world in which we live. And so we turn to everything that is unraveling all around us and we bemoan it, we protest this and we protest that, object to this and object to that. And how slowly we take seriously the gospel and its influence or the influence it ought to have on our perspective. Second thing that we discover from the text, and it almost leaps off the page, and to cite a verse from the New Testament from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, be angry and sin not. 
There is a place for righteous anger. The world we live in is marked by a great deal of injustice. And if we think that we can fix that and all will be right, well, we've missed the mark. Now, there may be some things we can do here and there and whatever at, a, at, a, uh, at an individual level, and certainly even in the political sphere, we're certainly free to approach matters individually. That's not the church's role. Be angry. It's okay to be angry at certain things, but sin not. There is such a thing as righteous anger, but you do not find it in 2 Samuel chapter 13. You can read this and read this and read this and read this again, and you will not find righteous anger. Finally, from the text, And perhaps the greatest point of all is that whereas there is little, if any, justice in this world, there is a just judge in heaven. And he will bring everyone into judgment at the last day, and everything will be made right then, but not necessarily now. He will bring everyone and everything under his just rule in the last day. He will make all things right. And even now, he judges men righteously. How so? He bestows righteousness. He judges sinners on the basis of a very real righteousness, a legal righteousness. He declares the sinner righteousness, righteous on the basis of the very real righteousness of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. And that is the good news. And that is the good news that puts everything else we see and everything else we experience into perspective. All of the injustice in the world and the injustice Uh, uh, perhaps uh, even closest to home or closer to home. Amnon was judged illegally. He committed two great sins and should have been brought under the just law of ancient Israel, was not, but was killed, slain, illegally by Absalom. And David, in responding to all of that, instead of choosing the judicial, which was his responsibility, chose the paternal. Love for 
sons over really a love for God and for his righteousness. But my dear friends, God does not choose the one over the other. His judgment upon sinners in the gospel is both legal and paternal. It is the way God determined to love guilty sinners on the basis of justice, on the basis of righteousness. As he sent his son who came willingly into the world to live and to die for you and for me for guilty sinners. Here is God's love and here is God's righteousness and no choice had to be made. No choice between the two was made. Here then is hope for the sinner. Here is hope for those of us and I suspect I include all of us, here is hope for all of us who grow angry and are tempted to respond in kind, to respond unrighteously. Turn your thoughts to the gospel and to the Savior who gave himself for you. Let us pray.